All right, here we are again in Acts chapter eight on the road to Ethiopia. Uh, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby are nowhere in sight. That's a joke for really old people. The rest of you don't even worry about it. (laughs) Acts chapter eight, it really puts the spotlight on four very interesting individuals. And it's kind of fun to watch how Luke is introducing people during these exciting first months and years, the early years of the Christian church. Of course, you know, there's no chapter breaks in the original manuscript that Luke wrote. And sometimes it's helpful to read through these chapters without paying attention to the breaks because then you get a sense of how the first readers would have encountered these different individuals along the way and these amazing narratives. Uh, But in this chapter, we've seen Paul, the persecutor, Philip, the evangelist, Simon, the magician, the false convert, And now we're going to meet a new man, a man of some importance from a distant land. He's a court official from Ethiopia. We don't even know his name. Could be that Philip uh, forgot his name by the time he told Luke uh, many uh, years later, told the story about this. But um, what is wonderful about this man is that God wants him. Uh, And he makes sure that Philip is there to give him the gospel. This man is on the road home from Jerusalem to Ethiopia and there won't be anybody in Ethiopia to give him the gospel. But before the world was created, God had chosen this man to be his own. So he's gonna make sure he hears the gospel. God is going to get to the gospel to him before he's out of reach. Did you ever ask or ever hear anybody ask what, what, what happens if somebody is seriously seeking to know God but doesn't have access to the gospel? It's a good question, but there's actually an error in the question itself. It it makes an assumption, and the assumption is that some people on their own are seriously seeking God. Now Psalm 14 says, the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. In fact, Psalm 53 says exactly the same thing. No one seeks God. So maybe that was just that generation you're thinking, or maybe David was just wrote that Psalm. Maybe he only means the people at his time. Nobody's seeking after God. Well, it really can't be that because Paul in the New Testament book of Romans takes that text and he applies it universally as a description of humankind. So it's true of all people in all ages. In fact, I'm gonna read you from Romans chapter three, verse nine and following. It's a little bit lengthy, but hang with me for a bit here. He says, um, not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one so he's giving his own rendering of that that's the human condition but you know there's a there's a promise in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 29 and it's much more hopeful Moses is prophesying about the Jews who will be driven into other lands because of their idolatry that's coming in the future and God has it written in the law of Israel so they'll always have it um, that they will be scattered but Deuteronomy 429 says from There you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul. So no one seeks, 
But if you do seek him with your whole heart, you're going to find him. So how do we put that together? Is that a riddle or a contradiction or a perplexing problem? No, actually, when you put both these truths together, they're pointing to God. If nobody seeks, how does anybody find him? How does anyone find him? Well, the answer is he finds them. That's the answer. Jesus said two things that are really uh, clarifying for this. One is in, well, both are in John chapter 6. One is in verse 65 of John chapter 6. He said, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So that's very clear. People can't come to Christ unless the Father grants that to them. And then in verse 44 of John chapter 6, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me. That word can is really important. It's a small word, but it means power or ability. Uh, No one is able, no one has the ability to come to Jesus unless the Father is drawing them. That makes sense. You know, in my mind, I was seeking God long before I really came to understand about Jesus and humble myself before him. Now I know that any interest I had was him drawing me and he was arranging my life so that I would hear the gospel and then he opened my heart to believe the gospel in his time when he wanted that to happen. So I sought him because he drew me. So you mean God just let some people be without drawing them? Yes, that is the clear teaching of the New Testament. Mercy is offered to everyone, but no one wants it without this gracious work of God in the heart. Listen very carefully to Romans chapter 9. This is a very long section, so stay with me. Romans chapter 9, verse 15. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed through the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, what does he still find fault? Why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded cannot say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he also called not from among the Jews only but also from among the Gentiles and he says also in Hosea I will call those who are not my people my people and her who was not beloved beloved And it shall be that in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. 
for the Lord will execute his word on earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of the Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and we would have resembled Gomorrah. Human beings will not come to God unless he does this saving work. He saves a remnant. God is the actor in the salvation of undeserving sinners. All human beings are deserving of God's wrath but while he offers his mercy to all humans are so sinful they won't take that mercy unless he draws them to it and awakens them. So today's story from Acts is is a wonderful story of God granting his mercy to an Ethiopian who was being drawn. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and God chose sovereignly to put his mercy on this man. So the Lord wants Philip to meet this man and so he gives Philip specific instructions about the place to go. I'm going to pick it up at verse 25 where we sort of ended last week to kind of move into this story transition into this story. So Acts 8:25, when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord talking about the apostles Peter and John they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans but an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. Okay so Jerusalem to Gaza it's a well traveled road. Why go there? Well for this Ethiopian that's his way home. That's the beginning of his journey home. So Philip goes there and he sees this carriage or wagon coming down the way. Verse 27. So he got up and went and there was an Ethiopian eunuch a court official of Candace the queen of Ethiopia who was in charge of all her treasure and he had come to Jerusalem to worship and he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. So this is an important man. I mean he's over the queen's whole treasury here so he's a big shot. And Candace is, is not really a, a proper name. It's, a, it's like the word Pharaoh or it may have been a name that became a title like Caesar you know Julius Caesar but then the emperors after him even outside of his family started calling themselves Caesars. Could have been like that but Candace is the name of all the queens of Ethiopia. Ethiopia. So um, Ethiopia is also called Cush in the Old Testament so if you see the word Cush that's the land of Ethiopia. And it was ruled by queens in a whole line of Candaces. So our man is a very high ranking official in her court and now our text says he's in a well it says he's in a chariot translations often use the word chariot my Bible does that which is technically correct but I think most of us think of a chariot sort of like a Ben-Hur chariot race kind of chariot it's got you know maybe two to four horses but it's a small conveyance you stand in it maybe two people can stand in there Um, that's not what this is this is like a wagon uh, or being an important man a comfortable open carriage is probably a better way to think about this so I'm going to call it a carriage because um, this is a, a four-wheeled vehicle, not a two-wheeled vehicle, like a little chariot. In fact, they just found in Pompeii, I think just a week or two ago, this four-wheeled conveyance like that. The front looks like a chariot, but it's much larger, and it's got four wheels like a wagon, and that would be something like, more like what this is, is supposed to be. So, he's traveling home from Jerusalem. He actually has a scroll of Isaiah that he's working through. Now, he was worshiping in Jerusalem, and that that's all we know for certain about him in terms of his religious interest. He must have learned about the God of Israel somehow and wanted to come to Jerusalem. 
Maybe through a book of Moses. Uh, maybe they had that where he lived. After all, one of Moses' wives, his second wife was, uh, was an Ethiopian woman, a Cushite. So while in Jerusalem, he obtained a scroll of Isaiah. Maybe he, it was a gift to him from a synagogue or from the priests or something like that. Or perhaps somebody mentioned to him that Ethiopia is mentioned in the book of Isaiah and he, and he purchased a copy or something like that. We don't know. But somebody told him that the prophet Isaiah possibly told him, um, talked about Ethiopia and that made him interested in that. A- Isaiah chapter 18 is a prophecy directed towards the Ethiopian people. So it's a description of judgment but the last verses there tell of a wonderful future. Let me read that for you. This is the last verse of Isaiah chapter 18. At that time a gift of homage will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth even from a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation whose land the rivers divide. To the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, even Mount Zion. So the people will eventually come to bow to the Lord in Jerusalem. And he's sort of prefiguring or for a, a forerunner of that prophetic fulfillment there. He, he's doing that very thing. He's gone to Jerusalem to worship. And what is an Ethiopian official doing on his way home? He's reading the Bible. He's reading this scroll of Isaiah that he's been given. So he has a ready heart. God is drawing him, drawing him. He set the circumstances. He had to rush Philip there to meet him, but he got him there. He wants him to hear the gospel. So he worshiped in Jerusalem. He's already drawn to the God of the Hebrews, um, the God of the Bible, and now he's being drawn in this story to the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, that God provided through the word of God. Okay, so Philip is there. The carriage is coming. The Holy Spirit speaks to Philip. Verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. So God directs the steps of the evangelist way out of his way for one man. So Philip runs over to the chariot and he hears the Ethiopian man reading from Isaiah. Now he hears him because people in the ancient world almost always read out loud. There's some famous stories about that, but uh, he was reading it out loud and Philip could hear what he was doing. Have you ever sat down and read through Isaiah? Um, It's not that easy. Uh, There's uh, lots of Hebrew poetry. It has some of the greatest passages in the whole Bible, but very little narrative. It's just tons of poetry. It's a collection of Isaiah's prophecies almost entirely, and you really need to pay attention and study it closely. It's not an easy book. But it really helps to know the whole Bible story before you get there. uh, What's going on leading up to Isaiah to even kind of grasp it. So what was happening in Isaiah's day? Why so much judgment and then so much hope in the second half of the book? It's just not an easy reading there. So while some portions are so wonderful they end up in Handel's Messiah. Other portions are really challenging for modern readers. Just a lot of place names and things you have to really think through. So he's trying to understand what he's reading. So Philip comes alongside, hears him reading. And Philip speaks to him in verse 30. Uh, Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So Philip asks a great question. Do you understand what you are reading? And with true humility, the man says, well, how can I without some help? Let me just stop right here. Folks, this this is a reason you should become familiar with the Bible because you never know when somebody's reading it and wants some help understanding it. 
It's not uncommon for people to pick up a Bible when they're desperate and look for answers. And that might bring all kinds of questions. And if you know your Bible, you can help them find that as a source of truth for their life and lead them to the gospel just the way Philip's gonna do here. The Bible is God's greatest gift to us after Christ. He's the greatest thing. But the Bible, that's how we know about Christ, through the word. So it's his word to us. You know, in Paul's last letter to Timothy, he reminds him, he says, from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.15 So it's the word of God that leads us to salvation. So right after Paul reminded Timothy of his childhood in the Bible, he says to him, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. That's what he tells that young pastor. Why does he say that? Because that's what a preacher is supposed to do. Preach the word. Now a lot of preachers preach all kinds of things. Their dreams, their visions, their experiences. um, A lot of clever stories and things like that. Or try to work up a crowd. But we're supposed to preach the word. We're supposed to share the Bible. So that's our first and highest calling. So the preacher preaches. And God uses the word of God. And draws people to himself. So and that's just not for preachers. This information Every Christian who loves his neighbor should be conversant with the Bible. You should know your way around the Bible and be able to discuss it intelligently and apply it to people and answer their questions. Yeah, you might be so wise you can run rings around the arguments of an unbeliever, but winning a debate is not winning a soul, is it? God's word is the sword of the spirit, the Bible says. Book of Hebrews says God's word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Can you do that? I can't do that but the word of God can do that. The word is powerful because the spirit uses it. But what if I share the word and a person doesn't respond? Well then they're not being drawn today. You can't draw people to Christ only God can draw people to Christ so you tell you share the scriptures the truth and God does the drawing people who aren't being drawn are genuinely not interested at least not yet so there's nothing you can do about that lack of interest except pray so Jesus is just some guy to most people right the the gospel is a legend to them or a story or whatever and and they might even be a religious person that believes that the Bible is telling some kind of important information that Jesus is some kind of religious leader or personage to them but not the wonderful savior who deserves all their love they don't see him that way they don't want him as as the Lord and King and Savior Um, but they just keep him in kind of a safe place for themselves they're not being drawn not yet took a long time for religious me to surrender to the Jesus who was there not the convenient Jesus I had in my own mind but the day came and and God knew when and people invited me to hear the word and I went and my need of a savior and the beauty and glory of Christ were revealed to my heart through the proclamation of the word of God so on this day this Ethiopian eunuch is going to have his heart opened by the Holy Spirit and the proclaimed word of the gospel So the eunuch invites Philip to sit with him in the carriage and they start discussing this passage. Now 
what was he reading again? Isaiah, that's right. Where in Isaiah? Isaiah 53. What a strange coincidence that was. The clearest gospel passage in the entire Old Testament. He just happened to be reading that at that moment. Still today, that that very text is used by God to lead many Jewish folks to Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 32. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation for his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said please tell me of whom does the prophet say this of himself or of someone else? Great question. Who is this about? Who is this about? Verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and began from this scripture. Beginning from this scripture. He preached Jesus to him. So I'm sure he shared all about Isaiah 53. Especially the verses immediately before the ones that the Ethiopian was reading to him. He, he might have said something like my friend let's just back up a few lines. Let me show you this. It'll help you understand. Uh, he might have backed him up to what we call verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity, the sin of us all to fall on him. That's the gospel right there. And Philip could tell this Ethiopian friend all about Jesus and the cross on which he died on Passover. He could explain how we're all sinners. We've all gone astray. And yet the Lord caused all of our sin to be placed on him. As the sin bearer freeing us from the penalty of death. He could point to verse 10. In Isaiah 53. The Lord was pleased to crush him. Putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. And verse 11 how Jesus will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Or he could point to Isaiah 53 verse 9. How he was buried in the tomb of a rich man Joseph of Arimathea. Or verse 12 how although he was cut off from the land of the living. God says I will allot him a portion with the great. And he will divide the booty with the strong. I mean all, all of that. Well how can, how can he divide the booty with the strong. And, and uh, get a portion with the great if he's dead because he was crushed and killed and well Philip can tell him about the resurrection and the more than 500 witnesses that saw the risen Christ and Peter and John and Mary Magdalene and all the apostles and tell the whole story about that the gospel is all there and it's a long ride so Philip has plenty of time in fact he could scroll back through uh, the scroll of Isaiah that they're looking at to chapter 9 what we call chapter 9 where the Messiah is called wonderful counselor mighty God eternal father prince of peace 
He could explain from there that Jesus was God incarnate not just a man. He could take him to Isaiah chapter 11 and show him that Messiah is the son of David full of divine wisdom and his kingdom will yet prevail upon the earth a righteous kingdom and how the curse will be removed. Isaiah 11:6 says this very familiar passage the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them also the cow and the bear will graze their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like an ox and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious all of this from this one scroll in this eunuch's hand he can share with him and of course Philip could have shared much more quoting other Old Testament portions by memory but but what a divine plan to have this man possess and be reading the book of Isaiah when Philip comes to him that was the day God was calling God was drawing God was awakening his heart he's so ready so verse 36 as they went along the road they came to some water and the eunuch said look water what prevents me from being baptized so Philip had talked to him about baptism too somewhere in that conversation and now I have to pause and explain why some of you don't have verse 37 in your Bible so in in my Bible I have a new American Standard Bible I think it's the 1994 edition um, verse 37 is there but there's little brackets around it with a marginal note in the side that says many manuscripts do not contain this verse but if you have an English standard version the ESV it's gone it's not there it goes from verse 36 to verse 38 there's no verse 37 at all and there there's a little note saying some manuscripts add all or most of verse 37 so in most of these um, you know these manuscripts were copied by hand and there's some variety in some of them down through the ages but uh, there's not a lot of passages that are really in question uh, this one is kind of what I would call a moderate case and in most of these manuscript variant situations where there's something that another one might not have I don't favor dropping them out of the verse unless there's no attestation for them at all mainly because if you're hearing somebody read that has a different translation in your Bible it's just not there and that's very jarring so um, I like to keep them in the text I, I like the idea of bracketing it and just saying that there's, it's not there and it is a questionable text it doesn't appear in any New Testament manuscripts or book of Acts manuscripts that we have that would that exist before the sixth century so that's pretty late for this kind of reading to be in there um, that's that's usually considered a pretty poor attestation that it actually belongs in the original text however quite a few church fathers quote verse 37 and so it was in their Bibles and some of those guys are really early really early like second century even early second century like Clement or a little bit later Irenaeus men like that they it was in their Bible so I don't know if Luke wrote it but it was around really early so I think bracketing it with a note is a good idea it might very well be genuine 
Anyway, Philip, Philip may have said, verse 37, if you believe with all your heart, you may, you may get baptized. And the eunuch may have answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So even if the text is not original because these early church fathers knew about it, it is a solid witness that Christians believe that salvation was by faith alone in the early church. Baptism is upon a profession of one's faith. That's all that was required to get baptized in in this reading here. So clearly some conversation like verse 37 must have happened because verse 38, which is in all the Bibles and that's clear, it's solid, Um, he says he ordered the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water Philip as well as the eunuch and he baptized him this is really good news for Baptists it's like they're immersing him right he's immersing him in the water no sprinkling here and then it ends the story ends with a whisk miracle what's a whisk miracle well Philip gets whisked away by the Holy Spirit verse 39 they came up out of the water and the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away and the eunuch no longer saw him but went on his way rejoicing he's a saved man but Philip found himself at Azotus that's a little north of Gaza and as he passed through he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea so Philip is working his way basically up the Israelite coast toward Caesarea so it's a wonderful story this whole story um, such an uplift after the experience just before this in the text with the phony conversion of Simon the wicked magician the Samaritan magician so why is Luke telling us this particular story well it's amazing it's wonderful it serves a narrative purpose as well though there's a thematic reason that this is in the book where it is Luke is starting to move the the salvation story he's presenting in the book of Acts beyond Israel so in chapter 7 we saw the gospel going to Samaria and the Ethiopian eunuch is almost certainly a Gentile and so this is a big step God is dramatically showing that he has an interest in the salvation of all sorts of people and that goes right back to Acts chapter 1 verse 8 which we talk about almost every week where Jesus said to take take the message to Judea and Samaria Uh, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and the remotest parts of the earth. So this is starting to move towards the remotest parts of the earth here. So um, those whom God chooses to save is expanding beyond the borders of Israel and the people of Israel. So here he saves an attentive and interested man who is not a child of Abraham by birth. So that's just really an important thematic element for the book. Another big theme here is God's mercy. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy we talked about. Here in chapter 8 God saves a man who has a great interest in being saved. Uh, He's being drawn. He's eager to know. uh, And that's great news. It's a wonderful story. Isn't that how most people come? That's often true. But we're being set up for chapter 9 where God is about to sovereignly save a man who has zero interest uh, at all in, in Christ and being saved at all and that's Saul this man Saul we met earlier not only does he not want Jesus Saul wants to stamp out the faith altogether so this theme of God's mercy then is seen in the salvation of this Gentile who is interested and in the salvation of this vicious persecutor who had no interest in following Jesus so God is not a respecter of persons and he has mercy on whom he will have mercy. He saves good people 
by human standards and he saves the worst people. We're all sinners. We're all sinners deserving of condemnation. And every saved individual should be able to say something like what John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace said near the end of his life. He said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. That's all we need to remember. Those are the things you need to remember. And that's true of us all. And most of all what he said is true of Christ. He's a great savior. So when we get to chapter 9. We're going to see an amazing salvation. Of a man who has zero interest in being saved. Let's pray. Lord God without your mercy. We would be lost people indeed. You draw. And you make the spiritually dead. Alive. You've done that for us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins and you made us alive in Christ. So we are in awe of you and we approach you with joy and thanksgiving and we're just overwhelmed with your mercy to us who don't deserve it. We ask you to bless us and help us to be available to others. Let us be as available as Philip. And if you say talk to that person, we're going to do it. We're going to seek people out. We're going to answer their questions. We're going to be there for them. We ask you to help us do that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. That's Acts chapter 8. Next week, chapter 9.